You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, he's a retired Warrant Officer 4, Chief Warrant Officer 4, uh, and he's also an Apache pilot, and that's what brings us to his story, as David Williams was one of the first POWs of the Iraq War and one of the first pilots to be shot down, if not the first pilot, David, I think, to be shot down during the Iraq War. You spent three weeks in captivity, uh, and your tale is just one of heroism and certainly courage and all of the like, and we want to welcome you to the Hazard Ground Podcast, David Williams. Thank you for being here, David. Appreciate it. And thank you so much, Mark, for having me. All right, so let's start from the very beginning. Why did you join the military? Uh, I joined, actually, I joined right out of high school. Uh, I came from a, uh, I wouldn't say regiment family. However, my mother was a police officer and uh, my stepfather also a police officer. And I think I wanted to do something different. So uh, I, want, I knew I wanted to be a pilot and uh, I also wanted to be in the Army. So I, come 1990, 91, I, I raised my right hand, said that uh, I want to join the Army, and the rest is history. Now, it's interesting, you say 1990, 1991, that was when the Persian Gulf War was going on. Did that have any influence in your decision? It did, it did. And I was extremely motivated by the way the military moved and the way they handled the first uh, Gulf War. Uh, nobody could have expected how Operation Iraqi Freedom would have gone. However, uh, it was such a quick war, and it was very motivating to see how our troops uh, executed their missions and worked as a team, and not just with the American troops, but with the Allied troops as well. And to come back and, and, and to be honored, I absolutely wanted to be part of that family. What was it about being a pilot that you liked so much? What, what attracted you to that? Um, well, I, I, I guess uh, the word my parents would, would use would be uh, um, somebody who uh, like a parachutist or, you know, adrenaline junkie, if right. you will. And, and I, I wanted to uh, be in the air. I love... Uh, being able to fly, to, to maneuver, and it, it was almost like a, a, a different perspective of freedom, you know, where you weren't confined to the ground, and uh, you had a completely different view of the world, and I, I that's the way I wanted to go. It, it, it was just the, the, the freedom to, uh, one, to be able to travel uh, large distances and uh, to go fast, and, uh, you know, I, I ultimately chose the Apache uh, because uh, you get to shoot from that aircraft. So <laughs> uh, I think that was uh, flying and being able to do that, that's what I wanted to do. And I ended up doing that for the better part of 25 years, almost 25 years. Right, and so for those listening, you enlisted in the Army, obviously. Now, to become a warrant officer, it's not a fully commissioned officer until you get to CW3, Chief Warrant Officer 3. But um, warrant officers are generally are 
subject matter experts in a given field. And But you have to be enlisted yes. first for X number of years before you can apply to be a warrant officer. So when you enlisted, did you enlist with the idea that you were going to be a warrant officer at one point in time to be a pilot, or did, that, did something in your career facilitate that? No, I, I actually uh, I enlisted uh, with that mindset that I would become a warrant. Uh, however, being that uh, what I previously said about being an adrenaline junkie, I had heard about this unit called the 160th Special Operations. Yes. And uh, I had so many people. I was a Huey Crew Chief when I first came in the Army. And even my company commander's like, you need to go assess for this unit as an enlisted guy. And I assessed in early 93, just in time for those guys to go uh, fight the Battle of Mogadishu. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't participate in the battle. However, that was my company uh, that was flying and executing those missions. And the irony is, is that Mike Durant, uh, who was a pilot in my company, is the first CRC-trained POW, and I'm the second. And it's also ironic that it was almost 10 years yes. to the day <laughs> that I was shot down and captured. Wow, that is uh, uh, that is uncanny and ironic. I mean, that's just a weird connection. And just to give some background, we've had several people from the Battle of Mogadishu on the podcast already. Mike Durant was a pilot who was shot down in a Blackhawk and was held in captivity for 11 days by Somalis uh, and eventually you know, given back to the United States after negotiations and things of that nature. But uh, he was one of the, you know, the most recent POWs since Vietnam uh, that Mike Durant was, and you share that connection. That's weird that you were both in the same unit. Now, the 160th, again, for more background, the 160th SOAR, the Special Operations Aviation Regiment, is full of the best pilots in the world. I mean, these guys are, are just the best of the best when they fly, and they have some of the toughest missions. And so to get in that unit, you are the best of the best. You were in that unit to start, so that's where you got your start as a pilot. Yes. I stayed in the unit for five years. Uh, I enjoyed it so much. Uh, the camaraderie was absolutely incredible. And I traveled all over the world with, as you stated, some of the best pilots in the world. And, and not just them, but the best crew chiefs, the best technicians, et cetera. And in 2000, or I'm sorry, not in 1997, uh, I decided it was time for me to put my packet in to go to flight school to become a pilot with, with uh, the possibility of coming back to the 160th to, to fly. Okay, so when you were in the 160th the first time, what was your job if you weren't flying yourself? Uh, I was I was an engine mechanic, Okay, and I was part of a phase team. So uh, anytime an engine was shot out or something like that, I usually had a four-hour time limit to have that particular engine swapped out and a brand new one and have that aircraft back in the air. Oh, wow. Okay. So, obviously, it's a, a very important job for you know the entire flight crew to, to, to do that and obviously keep them up and running. So, you go through all that, and then you finally go to test to be a pilot. How hard was that to actually pass and become a pilot? Uh, there, there was a lot of moments that were challenging. I think uh, for any helicopter pilot, I think the most challenging is the initial part, which is learning to hover. Uh, once you get that down, 
then everything kind of starts to fall in place as far as you manipulating the aircraft and uh, being able to fly. Um, I think one of the challenges that I enjoyed the most was flying instruments uh, without reference to to uh, to anything but my instruments, you know, flying in the clouds mm-hmm. and uh, also flying at nighttime. Uh, that in itself was a, another challenge. And just for, again, listening purposes of the civilian audience, you had to become a warrant officer first before you could become a pilot, correct? Well, I, yes. What I did is uh, I went through six weeks of uh, warrant officer training, became a W-1, and then at that point, uh, I was a W-1 for the next two years until I pinned W-2. And at that point in time, you, were you still flying, or were you able to fly once you became a W-2? Oh, absolutely. I flew all the way up until the day I retired. Okay. All right. So, obviously, once you got comfortable in the seat and never left. Okay, so this is what year that you start flying? Uh, I started flying in early of 98. February okay. 98, and uh, I finished flight school August 1999 as an Apache guy, and uh, I raised my hand once again. I wanted to go and be the tip of the spear, and I asked for Korea, and uh, they sent me off to Korea as an Apache pilot. Let's fast forward just because, uh, obviously, we don't get to your story without the events of 9-11 happening. Where are you on nine right. eleven? What job are you doing? And kind of give me through that the background of that day. Well, on nine eleven, I was actually doing an aerial gunnery uh, in Korea. I was on my third tour, I believe, my third hardship tour there, and we were actually doing the gunnery. And we had a small TV in in our operations center, and I saw it in disbelief. Uh, as we were watching this, uh, at the time it was CNN, uh, these news feeds of these airplanes. Uh, and the entire battalion, immediately, we, we went on alert because we knew right away, uh, one, incident, one airplane, an accident. Three airplanes, four airplanes, not an accident. Right. We knew that we were under attack. We didn't know who was responsible for it, and and that began uh, the current com- uh, combat operations that we're in to this very day. You know, David, a lot of people that we talk to when we hear about 9-11, after the shock of everything that was going on, for the soldiers, the airmen, the Marines, whoever it may be, in the back of their head, now the thought goes as well, hey, we're going like it's time, you know, everything that we train for, because in, in reality, up to this point in your career, I know you said that you were you're in the same unit in Somalia, but we hadn't had any major fighting for a very long time. So, no, sir, we were not involved in you're any conflicts. Correct. But when 9-11 happens, all of us who put on a uniform in the back of our mind are going, it's go time. It, it, it was. And it especially it really hit uh, a month after that came uh, come October. Uh, 2001, the beginning of November 2001, when troops started arriving in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, we knew it was on. And we knew this was going to be a long battle, and it was going to be, uh, I hate to use the term, but it was going to be ruthless. 
And, uh, you know, to this day, we're, we're still conducting those operations. So you actually deployed to Iraq out of Fort Hood. So you were in Korea during 9-11. What happens between then and the time? How do you get to Fort Hood? Well, uh, I immediately, shortly after that, I immediately transitioned. I was flying a, ver- a older version of the Apache, and I went through a newer version called the Longbow, which, uh, uh, which I still fly today. Uh, I went through the instructor pilot course, arrived at a unit, and at the time it was the first CAV division that I arrived at. And we were not on orders to go to Afghanistan or anything like that. In fact, there wasn't even any rumors to do anything like that. Uh, but then towards Christmas time of uh, 2002, we started hearing rumors about First Cap going. Mm-hmm. Well, it just so happens that the only unit that actually went was my battalion, first of the 227. And the intent was is to have my unit basically add to a different unit in Germany, Levin Regiment, which consists of two attack squadrons. And it was to plus them up to make a, uh, uh, a regiment with three attack battalions. And we were going to work directly for 5th Corps, and that is exactly who we worked for uh, upon arrival in Iraq. All right, so when do you get to Iraq? Because, for again, those who don't remember, the invasion in Iraq, we went into Afghanistan in October 2001. We didn't invade Iraq until the beginning of March. I think it was March 7th, 2003 was the actual shock and awe date uh, when it first started. And so when do you actually get to Iraq? Uh, I got to Iraq uh, late January, early February, and or I'm sorry, into Kuwait. And okay. what we did is we began preparing right. and conducting uh, training missions for our initial mission, uh, for our initial push into Iraq uh, in March. Okay, so you're in Kuwait, and this train up, and for those who don't know, Kuwait is kind of a, a, a hub for the United States military, a training hub, and everybody who goes to Iraq or Afghanistan would make a stop in Kuwait first, even if it's just for paperwork reasons, to announce that you're in theater, you're in the area of operations, and then they move forward. But at this point in time, there must have how many units were in Kuwait training up when you got there? Well, when I arrived, just at the camp, I was uh, stationed at Camp Udari, which is a large military uh, facility out there in the desert. Every Apache unit, even the, the Apache units that had gone to Afghanistan, there had to be over 300 Apache Lombos on station ready to go. So that gives you an idea. That's just the Apache. We're not talking about the other aircraft that should know the Black Hawk, the Kiowas, just the Apaches alone. I mean, this place was enormous. And and I, I, I hate to say it, uh, when I look back and look at the aero views of our tarmac, there was no way Saddam was going to make it. It just wasn't going to happen. <laughs> That's a good feeling. It's good to know that, yeah, listen, the American power and might of the military is is something to behold, and I don't think a lot of people actually can grasp it, uh, but those of us who put on a uniform do. We know how, how strong, and as you mentioned, even going back to the Persian Gulf War, how quickly we can really uh, 
you know, dismantle anybody in our way, uh, depending on the level of, of power and force we want to use. But it must have been a comforting feeling to see that and go, listen, we're going to go into this thing, but we know we're ready. Uh, we, and and every, all, at least in my company, I know for a fact, everybody was leaning forward, as we say, uh, uh, in the first cab division, cavalry division, leaning forward in the saddle. We were ready. All we were waiting for was the word go, and uh, and that's how it was going to be. So when do you get that word, and, and what were you told initially? Uh, the initial, the first attack was uh, the Anat Suri attack, and that took place on 21 March two, uh, 2003. And a battalion of Apaches of 6-6 out of Germany departed, and unfortunately, they flew into uh, what they call a small or small, uh, one of these huge dust storms. Now, and, and this is at nighttime, mind you. So, uh, unfortunately, they ended up turning around due to the weather and coming back. And so that kind of that kind it it didn't destroy the morale, but in a way, we felt like we let down the command. Uh, by having to do that. So now there was even more of an emphasis to get into the fight. And then March 23rd, uh, on the 22nd, we were planning for it. March 23rd, without hesitation, all 300 Apaches departed Kuwait into Iraq. Wow. And so obviously going to all different places, it's not like a line of 300 Apaches are flying north. But, I I mean, when you understand the orders that you're given uh what is your feeling what are you being told where you're going what's the mission that you're doing are you just providing air cover for troops on the ground because the initial invasion had already started by this point so what are you what are you being told by your superior officers well my my particular mission uh as a core asset was to do what we refer to as a deep attack in other words this is going to be our highest risk mission okay and our job was to pave the way for the 3rd Infantry Division to go through the Kerbala Gap. If you were to look at a map of Iraq, mm-hmm. geographically, when you look at the city of Kerbala, and then just to the northeast is Baghdad. It's about 60 miles, just for those listening, about 60 miles southwest, or 60 miles difference between Baghdad and Kerbala is to the southwest. And, and, and you're right, and it's... And the thing is, it's not even a speed bump. In other words, there's nothing uh, except farm fields, four-lane highways, and, and so forth in between there. So the Iraqis know that they've got to stop us down in Kerbala. If they don't, they know that we will be on Baghdad, we will be on the doorstep, and once we take Baghdad, we own the country. Right. It's ours. And... And I, you know, I dare say, uh, we took off on that mission at night, and I, a part of me, I was very nervous because I had never gone up against a force this large. This was the first fight against the Republican Guard of the war, of the entire war. And at the time, CENTCOM, the Republican Guard comprised of 20 different special forces groups. They were the most uh, 
well-maintained. They had the highest morale. They had the best equipment. So if they were going to put up a fight, it was going to be tonight. And so there was a little, there was a little uh, concern. However, as a gun pilot uh, and, and the way that we think, we're going to go ahead and we're going to execute the mission to the best of our ability. And I, as we took off that night, and, and, if, and if you don't mind, I'll continue on on how this went down. Yeah, just do me one favor real quick, just for everybody's purposes. So from where you are in Kuwait, the flight to Kabbalah by helicopter, how long does that take? Uh, that took, we, we departed in the daytime up to on the job, which took uh, maybe two and a half hours. Okay, and, and the job is about three hours. The job is about another 60 miles south of Karbala, southeast of Karbala. But, you know, Baghdad, Karbala, and the job all sit in a generally straight line from, from north right. to south. So it's, it's kind of like on the, on the way. And if you look at a map of Iraq, the main route, if, if you will, for people on the East Coast, I-95, for people listening on the West Coast, I-5, there's that main road that goes all the way from Kuwait, the Iraqi-Kuwait border, runs all the way up through Baghdad, all the way up into the north of the country. It's like one main highway, and Najaf, Karbala, and Baghdad all sit kind of right along the, you know, the side of this highway just to give people you know, a, an idea of, of what's going on around you. So it's a two-and-a-half-hour flight from Kuwait to Karbala, and you, are le- you leave during sunlight, but you get over Karbala or, and Najaf and Karbala when the sun is down. Right. What what we did is we landed in preparation uh, for our mid. We landed southwest of Anajah in preparation for nightfall, and then at night that's when we were going to conduct the attack. Uh, unbeknown to us, when we landed, Iraqis had utilized cell phones to report our position, if if you will. Mm-hmm. And the Iraqi tacticians, knowing that, like you were describing, those major uh, uh, highways and MSRs and stuff, they know that where we're going. And so they know on who to notify to have them stand by for an imminent air attack. And they had learned from the first Gulf War that the 64 is is um, is extremely tough in combat. Small arms are not going to bring it down. You're going to need large caliber weapons. And when I say that, I re- I'm referring to uh, something the size of 12.7 millimeter or 14.5. You're going to need a large anti-aircraft gun to get these things down. Otherwise, the aircraft are going to continue flying. Right, and, and, and when David uh, says the 64, he means the Apache. It's a, the, the nomenclature of a UH-64 is also known as an Apache, just for those listening. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, That's okay. The, the, it's the uh, AH-64. And, and uh, you know, we waited for nightfall, and then when it was time to execute the mission, we departed on the mission, blacked out, and in my section we had 18 longbows, or Apaches en route. And I'll never forget, by this time it was about 2 in the morning, and I'm looking as I fly down the highways, I see over the city, I see people, just, you know, numerous people all out in the streets during these early morning hours, of which normally they would be asleep. Right. And I noticed the city of Anhala and 
Kabbalah, which are adjacent to each other. Mm-hmm. And as we get closer, the entire city, all the electricity went off. And I thought to myself that was kind of odd. And then all of a sudden, the electrical grid came back on, it went off, and it came back on again. And I would say probably within 60 seconds to two minutes after that, the entire sky just started filling up with all these sparkles of of what we refer to as uh, S60 fire, 57 millimeter. Mm -hmm. Shortly after that, we referred to snakes, as we call them. They look like snakes as they go across the horizon. And what it is is tracer fire. And so what the Iraqis did is as we got over the city, they threw up and they would shoot the S-60 fire up at altitude to force us down to stay down in the range of the other anti-aircraft guns and basically create this imaginary wall in space, if you will. Yeah, okay. I I mean, again, for those listening, so they used the heavier gunfire to get your helicopter to fly lower, which would then allow lesser gunfire, which they had more of, lower caliber gunfire, which they had more of, AK-47 gunfire, things of that nature, to shoot at the helicopter because it was you were flying lower, so you were an easier target. Yes. And when they turned this, when the lights of the city came back on, and I, I, I will tell you personally from having been on the ground, I didn't need goggles, night vision goggles or anything to see the aircraft. I could see it unaided. So it made it that much more easier for them to to mitigate us and shoot at us and lead us and so forth. Okay, so you you you're, you leave Najaf, you're flying to Karbala, you kind of get tipped off that something is amiss and the gunfire starts. What are you thinking when the gunfire starts? What are you feeling? And and how quickly does it, as the as we everybody tells us, how quickly does it get real for you? It uh, uh, immediately, and I remember uh, my front seater, uh, my co-pilot Ron Young, who was my gunner at the time. He says, "I cannot believe this is happening," and of course, at the same time, I felt the same way because we honestly. Back in the unit, we thought that the Iraqis would capitulate. Right. We thought that they would put up an initial fight, and then they would capitulate, and that would be the end of it. You have to remember, we're going back off of of the mindset of the first Gulf War. Sure. And in the first Gulf War... That's not how it was this go-around. In the first Gulf War, Iraqi soldiers folded like lawn chairs. I mean, essentially, they, they, they shot a couple of times, and then when the Americans showed up, they threw their hands in the air and said, we surrender. And, and it was the exact opposite okay. this time around. All right, so what is and, when you start to take a lot of heavy gunfire, your co-pilot says to you, I can't believe this is happening, how are you reacting in the air at this point in time? At this point, uh, I would start to take tracer fire. Now, we were limited. We were constrained to an altitude of 300 feet above the ground. That's the highest we could go. Because above that airspace, you had Tomahawk missiles, you had artillery, you had fast moves, a lot of moving parts and pieces. So I was forced to stay down as low as I possibly could. And what I would do, they call it jinking. 
and and basically what that means is 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 I would jink the aircraft hard to the left to avoid some anti-aircraft fire, and if I started taking fire from the left side, I would jink the aircraft hard back to the right, in in an attempt to avoid being directly hit and put the belly of the aircraft in between me and the people that were shooting at us. Okay, makes sense. Uh, as a defense mechanism. Yeah, right. Because see. The, the fuel cells and underneath the aircraft, there's a lot of armor plating, and the fuel cells that are actually under the aircraft are self-sealing. So if a round goes through it, there is a, there's a material that will actually seal itself and, and uh, a coating, and it won't leak fuel, if you will. And uh, so basically I'm doing everything I can to avoid any aircraft fire. Now, at the same time, my front seater, as he's, he's flying, he has a gun, the TADS, or the target acquisition, which he uses to see at night, is shot out. So now he's basically up there in the front seat because we sit in tandem. He sits in front of me, I sit in the back mm-hmm. while flying. He, all he can do is just go along for the ride. It's it's me now flying the aircraft, doing the best that I can. Is that a helpless feeling? It 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 is a helpless feeling. Uh, I took a round through my left foot, uh, probably within a few minutes. As soon as we got over the city, and uh, it's it's funny now, but it wasn't funny then. Uh, I I when the round went through my boot, I I. I said, God damn it, they got me in the foot. And my front seater said he lifted both his feet up subconsciously like that was going to make things better. (laughs) (laughs) It went through the armor on the bottom, but if he lifts his feet off the bottom of the chopper, all of a sudden he's got some protection. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, looking back at it, it, it's humorous at the time it wasn't. Okay, but uh, let me ask you a question real quick because uh, for people who don't know, you st- you fly a helicopter with your feet. There are pedals down there that you need to control the aircraft. When you yes. get shot in the foot, did that affect your ability to fly? No, I still continue to fly, no matter how painful it was. I still i I still did the best I could in controlling the aircraft. And what you don't understand, Mark, is that whatever hit me in the foot did additional damage to the left side of my aircraft. Okay. I lost my primary hydraulic pump. And I lost the number one engine, so I didn't. I didn't see what it was that had shot at me. I just knew that uh, we had taken uh, extensive damage to the left side of the aircraft. So, what's your course of action at this point? I mean, do, do you, how much longer can you fly on one engine, and what are you thinking as far as courses of action to get yourself out of there? Well, I, I basically, I was kind of. Uh, you know, my thought was never to egress or to get away because there was other aircraft that I was concerned about that were flying that were experiencing the same type of damage that we were. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, one aircraft uh, was flown by a gentleman called uh, Sean Wojcicki and Justin Taylor, and they transmitted on the radio on guard, which is emergency frequency for a lot of people who don't understand. When you transmit on guard, 
nobody can talk on the radios because it's a frequency specifically for emergencies. And it's that, I mean, no matter what you say on the radio, nobody can hear. And so as I'm flying and I'm, and my co-pilot, he's trying to guide me through the lesser spots or the le- the lesser of the anti-aircraft fire. I hear him, and he says he's lost an engine. He's taken uh, heavy. In, you know, he was a little bit further north of me in the city. And my front seater at the time says, we got to get in there. We have to go help him. So at the, I was flying southbound, and I've got myself kind of trapped in this little circle, if you will. So I turned the aircraft back to the north, and as I come back to the north, I made a call. I said, hey, Reaper 1-1, which was his internal call sign, I said, I'm coming to get you. Now, whether he heard that or not is beyond me. However, as I make my way to the north, I start taking fire from what appeared to be a DISCA or a, a uh, ZPU-1 12.7 millimeter. Which I is an anti-aircraft. It's an anti-aircraft. Yeah, another anti-aircraft gun that that I had flown over before, which was next to like a farmhouse, which wasn't there, and they had pulled it out uh, to shoot. And unfortunately... Because I I put 20 rounds of uh, 30 millimeter on top of them, I wasn't focused to the left. So what they did is they suckered me in to shoot at these guys. All the while, there was a what we call a uh, BMP, which is a Russian track vehicle that has a larger caliber anti-aircraft gun on it. And when I made my left turn in front of him, I was trying to avoid these power lines uh, that were just to our west. And all of a sudden, inside the aircraft, we have what we call Betty. Uh, she talks to you when things go bad. And she had already told me that engine one out, engine one out, tail rotor, hydraulic failure. And immediately, I leveled the aircraft. I did what we call a low inertia, uh, or I'm sorry, a low acceleration auto rotation. I planned the aircraft down in the rice paddy. The aircraft came back up a little bit and then came back and and then finally squatted down in the mud and settled into the rice paddy. And when that happened, I secured the helicopter and at that time gave the command, get out, get out, get out. And the funniest thing, Ron, my co-pilot, 6'4", okay, mm-hmm. and the front seat of Apache is very, very tight. I remember egressing the aircraft as I was getting out to the right side. My co-pilot was already standing out there waiting for me. And he looked at me and he says, we have got to go. Um, A lot of people don't understand as helicopter pilots, when you're in combat and you get shot down, most likely, it's always in line of, pe- line of sight of the people who shot you down. Unfortunately, you know, our fast mover, jet uh, jockeys, if you will, F-16, the, the fighter jets, 
They have the luxury to either kick in afterburner, egress the area, or eject and get away from the aircraft. Helicopter pilots cannot do that. Right. So what I'm taking with me, what I'm wearing, is what I'm going to take with me as far as survival goes, and I've got to get away from the aircraft because the people who shot me down are coming to get me. Now, when when and, the, the chopper got hit, and you when you were going down, what was going through your mind when you knew you had to put the put the helicopter down? What's going through your mind at that time? Uh, I didn't want the other helicopters to leave Ron and I there. I wanted them to uh, basically, if I could get one of them to land near where we were at, Ron and I could get on top of the wings because there's no way to get inside of it. It's only a two-man aircraft. And then they could just fly out with us on the wings. Right. That, And <clears throat> unfortunately, because everybody in that fight had their own battles that they were contending with, I I, I was in disbelief because I, I, at the time, my little girl was maybe... She was born in October, so she was only a couple months old. And my son had just had a second birthday in February. And they were at the at the forethought uh, of everything because I wanted to live, and I didn't, I, if you will, I didn't want to die in this country under the, you know, by yeah. some Iraqis, and have my kids grow up having to remember me through a picture. And and as Ron and I did the best that we could to, to evade the Iraqis, and I'm going to tell you, we didn't. Ron and I made it probably 200 meters away from the aircraft, and there were flashlights, there were trucks, there was Iraqis all over the aircraft. That's how fast they were on it, <clears throat> and they essentially, basically. They could see where we had gone through the rice paddies, and they were just basically following that trail of debris that we were leaving. Were you looking for, like, a building to hide in? Were you just trying to find some cover underneath whatever to, to, to keep yourself concealed? As you're running away, what's going through your mind? Uh, uh, there, was, there were several things that were going through my mind. One was I had my survival radio out trying to make a call to somebody. And Ron and I were trying to get to uh, what we call a palm grove, uh, uh, an area where they had palm trees. <clears throat> Excuse me, because we wanted to provide some type of cover or concealment. But just like here in the United States, in every backyard there were dogs, they were barking and uh, making all this racket and all the gear that we had was making all this noise, and uh, it was making it very difficult. Everywhere we turned, we could hear Iraqis yelling. You know, as, as we came up to this, uh, rice paddies are usually lower than the service roads that service them. And we came up to a canal, it looked like the irrigation canal. And it was about that time of year. It was March. And I was very hesitant about getting in the water because it 
wasn't as if I was going to be able to start a fire. We were going to be able to warm ourselves up. We didn't right. know how long we were going to be evading. And uh, nevertheless, it actually bought us about an hour's time. The Iraqis were able to trace us to the canal, but they didn't see which way we had gone. So they literally they had to split up to try to find us. When you're in the canal, though, do do you hear them like running by you and close to you? I mean, are you are you hiding? What's what's going on around you? Uh, no, well, actually, in the canal, uh, Ron and I were just pulling ourselves. Uh, if you will, along the shoreline with just our noses above the water. It, and um, we were trying to stay as low as we possibly could. Um, at this point, I remember watching the helicopter go down the route. And it was the last helicopter I saw. And the whole right wing of the helicopter was this huge fireball. And it turned out to be, at the time, we didn't know who it was. Uh, we thought it was our wingman. It turned out it was my battalion commander, Colonel Danny Ball, wow. and John Davis. And they were looking for Ron and I. But they were unable to uh, stay over the area because they themselves were on fire. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and if you know anything about uh, aviation and fire... They don't mix. <laughs> Aircraft burn up very quickly. And I, Ron and I looked at each other, and we watched the aircraft kind of nose over behind the palm trees that we were trying to get to, and we just heard this loud explosion, and we saw the glow. And our hearts sank because at the time... We thought it was our wingman, and I said, man, Fred Polidor, he just he just had a brand-new child. Uh, you know, they were both married, and, and it took a day for our command to convince us that nobody died on that mission because Ron and I saw it with their own eyes. It turns out that when they nosed over, they jettisoned their wing stores to get rid of the Hellfire and the rockets. And when the rockets and the Hellfire missiles hit the ground, that was the explosion. Ah, okay. Well, I guess that, and, and that was a smart move. they were able to keep flying southbound. Wow, that's uh, that's, that's incredible. All right, so you're in this canal. You're kind of headed just head above water going along. How do you get found by the Iraqis? So... I'm not too proud to say that uh, I, I was very cold. We both were freezing to death. And would you believe that in the back of my mind, in 1996, uh, when I was in the 160th, we had heard a story about these rangers that were in the Florida phase. And uh, I don't remember the number. I guess there was about four or five of them. Uh, they were in the swamp phase, and because they were under duress, they haven't slept, they ended up succumbing to hypothermia and ended up dying during training. And I actually thought about that. And here we are, Ron and I, we're in the water, 
no telling how long we're going to be in the water. But nonetheless, Ron and I said, okay, we'll get out, we'll cross this road, which was elevated, we'll go into the other side, and then we'll continue head for, for the palm trees. When we got to the other side, of the, to the top of the road, of course, because we were soaking wet, you could see where we had crossed the road. Right. And when we get to the other side, there's another body of water, like a, a, a pond, if you will. And I said, well, I, 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 uh, Ron asked me, he says, what do you want to do? I said, <clears throat> I said, let's just get down by the water's edge. If we have to get back in the water, we can. But let's not get in the water. Let's walk along the edge. That way we're not silhouetted on top of the road. And then we'll make our way towards the uh, palm trees. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Tune in next week for part two of this episode. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.